Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. No conspiracy theories here, just the hard truth. Alex Jones has to pay up. Now, these families, of course, can never ever be made whole for what they've lost. But with compensatory damages, the jury endeavors to try. Jones now has to pay the parents of a Sandy Hook school shooting victim more than $4 million for the cruel and widespread and relentless lies that added to their heartache over a 10-year period. Now, of course, this does fall way short of the $150 million they did ask for in compensatory damages, sought by little Jesse Lewis's parents. A number their attorney said came from the number of people who believed the false claims of a hoax spewed by Jones and his absolutely baseless argument that the Newtown's grieving parents were actors. The number also factored in the emotional and mental anguish those parents suffered and, dare I say, likely continue to suffer to this day from years of harassment by Jones and his followers. Now, his seemingly last-ditch effort to try to save himself included finally acknowledging what everyone else hopefully knew to be true, that the massacre was, quote, using his words, after, what, 10 years? 100% real. But the $4 million is actually not the end of the story, not in this courtroom out of Texas, because Jones' legal battles are actually far from over. You see, if compensatory damages are supposed to make you whole in some way— bring you back to where you were before this all happened. Well, punitive damages, they're just meant to punish. And tomorrow, that same jury will begin considering just how much to financially punish Alex Jones. Now, the judge judge said no to Jones's bid today for a mistrial. This is after yesterday when the plaintiff's lawyer dropped that truth bomb, saying that he had two years' worth of text messages from Jones to his, as you saw, Total shock and surprise. Jones' lawyers apparently accidentally, according to the opposing counsel, sent them to the plaintiff's attorneys with no attempt to even claim privilege. As they say, but wait, there's more. It's not just this particular trial, and once that punitive phase is done, because he faces two more trials, one more actually in Texas, and one in Connecticut where the attack shattered the families of the 26 students and teachers murdered at Sandy Hook. Now, of course, the question is, will any of this stop the relentless campaign of disinformation that made nearly 10 years, 10 full years of mourning unimaginably worse? In a statement this evening, the lawyer for Jesse Lewis's parents notes that they are also due another $1.5 million in fines alone for a total of $5.6 million and counting, he says, to quote him, they are thrilled with the result and look forward to putting Mr. Jones's money to good use. Mr. Jones, on the other hand, will not sleep easy tonight with punitive damages still to be decided and multiple additional defamation lawsuits pending. It is clear that Mr. Jones's time on the American stage is finally coming to an end. Now, the question is, is that 
true and a more broader discussion as well about misinformation. And if it's time to pay the piper, will that song stop in a whole variety of ways? Will it stop others? Talk with our panel tonight. I've got Scott Jennings, Abby Finkenauer, and David Swerdlick. Glad to see you all here. Listen, first of all, it might, not, it might surprise you what I'm getting ready to tell you. There's a moment, apparently, where Alex Jones has responded, and he's called this a win for truth. I'm going to play it for you in a little bit, but let me just tell you, this is where the spin actually is. So misinformation still abounds. What's your thought on this particular compensatory damages win? I'm glad the parents of the little boy, I'm glad they're happy. I mean, their lawyer says that they're thrilled with it. So if they're happy, I'm happy. And I'm glad he can still be punished further. And I'm glad he's going to face other trials. I mean, this is obviously going to go on and on and on for him. And I hope it goes on for the rest of his life because he deserves it. I mean, he put these people through hell uh, and they'd already been to hell. And, uh, and no, no money can bring back, you know, what you've lost in some situation like this. But it can send a strong message that you can't go out and terrorize your fellow citizens. And I think that's, to me, what exactly he did. He lied about them. He terrorized them. And so this is a win for sending a message that you just can't go out and terrorize people. It's a win for common decency. Well, you know what? Let's hear what his message is. I want you to hear this. I've teased it for you. You think I'm probably lying. I'm telling you, the message that he gave, it was seven minutes. I'm not playing the whole thing. Just (laughs) Just so we're clear, I'm not playing the whole thing. I'd rather hear from all of you than Alex Jones. However, I want you to hear how he is asking his supporters to help him. More money. Here he is. I admit it, I made a mistake. I admitted that I followed disinformation, but not on purpose. I apologize to the families, and the jury understood that. What I did to those families was wrong, but I didn't do it on purpose. He did, a- Abby, I, I mean, I heard you laughing. He didn't do uh, what on purpose? Tell the thing for 10 years? He's absolutely disgusting. I mean, I think I'm allowed, I was asking you earlier if I'm call, allowed to call him something else, uh, but I'll, I'll hold back for now. But he is a horrible, horrible human being who is just continuing, continuing to grift off of falsehoods, misinformation, and the, this family's grief. I mean, all of these families' grief. And it unfortunately isn't unique anymore in the United States of America to have people grifting on misinformation. I mean, unfortunately, we see that from the former president of the United States. That is what they do now. And it's heartbreaking and it's also dangerous to our country and to democracy. And I hope this trial sends a very loud message that you can have your opinions, but you are not entitled to your own facts and to terrorize people over it. I think the the congresswoman is right, that um, Jones is not the only one who does this. It was kind of Trump-like to be found out and yet double down on what you were already done, had already done in a way. He wanted to sound apologetic in that video. But even before that video, Laura, earlier in this week, a few times he played the sort of everybody makes mistakes card. He said, oh, actually, now I believe Sandy Sandy Hook was real. He said the media won't let me get you know, passed it. He said, I didn't mean to uh, insult the jurors when it, the jurors had been insulted. But because the plaintiff lawyer busted him yesterday with those text messages and with that screed in court, 
I think if you're a juror now, you're entitled to go back to the jury room when you're talking about the punitive damages, not the compensatory, and say, this wasn't accidental, this wasn't a one-off, this wasn't poor reporting, this was a deliberate attempt to weave a tale over many years at the expense of those families, those Sandy Hook families, Jesse Lewis's family. And I don't, I, I'm not going to guess how much the damages are, but jurors will feel entitled to and, drop the hammer. I mean, I don't think, and this just by your comments alone, guys, this is obviously not being thought of in a vacuum. This is obviously as tragic as Sandy Hook is. We are talking about the backdrop of misinformation more yeah. broadly and a culmination of frustration towards that and accountability. You talk about the idea of grifting. I mean, that was this phrase was actually yeah. used in the January 6th hearings to describe the campaign that was used to try to get money off of the um, election-related lies. And so I think it's a, more, it's a broader conversation. And so if you think it's, you said, Scott, the idea of, um, of sending a message do you think the message translates more broadly or do you think that this is so nuanced people go, no, no, this is just this case and misinformation other places, that's a separate issue. Well, if I were trying to apply the lesson more broadly, it's that we have to, if we want to have trust in institutions, we have to have trust in institutions. Criminal justice system worked here, you know. The, well, it's civil, so, right? It's civil uh, case. Sorry, yes. the civil yeah. justice system worked. Our, 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 our legal system, system worked here, yeah. Right. And it took a long time, uh, but it's working. And so, um, that to me, if, if, if you want to stamp out this kind of grifting, if that's what we're going to call it, you have to let these institutions do their work. And so this one worked, and I, it seems like it's going to continue to work over the next you know, several months or years. And I, I, but I think you could apply that more broadly. You know, if, if you do something that's over the line, there are systems and institutions in place that will hold you accountable. And to me, I think that's the, the critical issue. I do think it's curious. I mean, for some reason... This wasn't called a witch hunt, and it was an institution working. Something about that, right? Something about the idea of the process unfolding and accountability. Everyone stick around. Coming up, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis benches a state attorney over a perceived woke agenda. So the question now is, where is the line between prosecutorial discretion and politics? The same thing that's a suspended official is going to join me live next, and he's certainly not backing down. Right back with that in a moment. Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis suspended Tampa's top elected prosecutor. The governor says he removed the state attorney, Andrew Warren, from office for, quote, neglect of duty and incompetence, unquote. Now, that neglect appears to be a letter that Warren signed, along with 83 prosecutors nationwide, pledging not to prosecute anyone who seeks, provides, or supports an abortion. And I don't think the people of Hillsborough County want to have an agenda that is basically woke, where you're deciding that your view of social justice means certain laws shouldn't be enforced. I'm joined now by the man elected twice by the people of the county just named by that governor, Hillsborough County. Andrew Warren. Good to see you, Andrew, although I'm, I'm certain that you have quite the reaction to what has happened today. I want to just ask this question, though, because I think that people might not fully understand what's happened today. Were you presented with a case where you were told or had the opportunity to prosecute somebody who was seeking, providing, or some way helping to acquire an abortion, and you refused to prosecute? Or this was a hypothetical that you were released on? 
<laughs> well, you'll have to ask the governor. I mean, I certainly wasn't presented with any case. And this just shows how flagrant this overreach is. This is a blatant violation of the most fundamental principles in our democracy, that the people get to elect their leaders. That's how democracy works. Even my eight-year-old understands that. Well, you know, you and I are both prosecutors, um, and I certainly understand the idea of prosecutorial discretion. And there are choices made all of the time about whether to pursue cases, whether to not pursue cases. This is really part of the job and part of, I assume, why one would elect somebody to be a prosecutor as well. And so in that instance, based on that, why would this be a dereliction or a neglect of duty for you not to or for you to decide how to wield your discretion? It's not. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's not a dereliction of duty. In fact, it's not even talking about things that I've done in the office. It's talking about things that I may do in the future for a law that doesn't even exist yet. I mean, this is out of like 1984 Orwellian thought police. I've said that if a law was passed like this, then I would make sure we use our resources to do what the people elected me to do, keep our neighborhoods safe, promote justice and fairness. The government, the governor's just grasping at straws here. He's not caring about what's best for the people of Hillsborough. He's caring about his presidential ambitions. Now, based on the caveat you just gave, though, let me just push back for a second, because you did sign a letter that essentially said, look, I'm, I'm not going to prosecute a case like this without having a case before you, without having a specific fact pattern to talk about. You did say if that law was passed, you then would not do something to prosecute. Why would that be excusable? if a prosecutor's job was to enforce the laws as written? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. It's a, it's a great question because I put my hand on the Bible and I swore to uphold the U.S. and the state constitutions. And at the time I signed that, Roe v. Wade was still the law of the land under the U.S. Constitution. And the Florida Constitution has an express right to privacy. The law that the governor is mad at me for saying I won't enforce, which, by the way, I said I would look at on a case-by-case basis, is a law that's unconstitutional, that's already been held unconstitutional by the first court to look at it. I want to play what Governor Sanders had to say, because he actually touched on that very notion of the idea of not looking at a case-by-case basis. Here he is. We are going to make sure that our laws are enforced uh, and that no individual prosecutor puts himself above the law. Yes, you can exercise discretion in an individual case, but that discretion has to be individualized and case-specific. You can't just say you're not going to do uh, certain offenses. So that's not what you were doing, you're saying. By signing that letter, it was still Roe v. Wade you were referencing, and you do still intend, should you be in that position, to actually look at a case-by-case basis. Is that right? Yes. And I've said this from the beginning when we were talking about the abortion law, that even though there's a right to privacy in Florida, and even though the law that the legislature passed is unconstitutional, if we put those things aside for a moment, if a case comes to me, we exercise our discretion under the new law as we would under the old law. There's a big difference between a Tampa General Hospital doctor providing abortion at 24 weeks versus a back alley abortion at 37 weeks. And any good prosecutor who's following the law will look at the facts of the case and the law before making a charging decision. Again, the governor's just upset because I'm not kowtowing to his agenda. I'm the one upholding the law here. On abortion, the law is clear in Florida. That 15-week ban is unconstitutional, and I said I'm not going to enforce it. 
So are you, I mean, I know that you have been suspended. Is there, what is your thought on the anticipation of possibly being reinstated by the Florida State Senate? I mean, they don't actually come back into session, I think, until March. Do you intend to go back to work tomorrow, nonetheless? I'm going to continue doing what the Hillsborough County citizens elected me to do, which is keep our neighborhood safe and promote fairness and justice and the rule of law. I've done that every day for the past five and a half years, and I'm not going to stop now. The reality is that the governor can sign some order in his pen or in his crayon, and it doesn't change what the voters elected me to do, which is to serve this community to the best of my ability. Well, it looks like it'll be a very interesting morning tomorrow in your office. Wona Andrew Warren, thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Look, the context is as clear as the latest Republican polling, by the way. I mean, Governor Sanders is the only Republican besides Donald Trump with double-digit support for the 2024 nomination. I mean, look at that. It's an inverse, 43-34. Look, I can do math, everybody. I called it an inverse. (laughs) Why is everyone laughing? Of course I can do math. What are you talking about? Excuse you all. Let's discuss that with Scott Jennings, Abby Finkenauer, and David Swerdlick. I get it. Only lawyers really, really bill people. We don't do the math. But listen, what do you make of the idea? I mean, Governor DeSantis essentially has somebody suspended and basically escorted out of the building because he won't eventually look at a case in his mind, case by case, and doesn't want to, doesn't intend to follow what the Supreme Court says he's supposed to follow or not follow. What's your thought? Two takeaways, Laura. Number one, uh, that Governor DeSantis used the word woke in that speech very intentionally. If there's a 2024 Republican presidential primary, being tough on wokeness will be just as important as being tough on crime or being tough on China. I think a lot of the things that Governor DeSantis does going forward have to be looked at through that prism of a potential presidential race. One more quick point. All my life, most of my life, Republicans have said the government that governs best is the government that's closest to the people. That would be the voters of Hillsborough County and their district attorney. If they don't like him, they think he's too woke, they can vote him out in 2024. But apparently now the idea is it should come from Tallahassee or from Washington. I mean, just the thought here, I mean, the umbrella of wokeness is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. For I mean, woke seems to be anything that is not what the governor wants, right? That's not, the, that's not actually the criteria for wokeness, is it? I don't want to... Scott Jennings, how do you, how do you define woke? <laughs> Well, I'll just give you a macro view. There are Republicans all over this country who are quite concerned about a growing number of liberal prosecutors who seem to be more interested in their own personal ideological agenda than they are in prosecuting the laws. He's not the only prosecutor who's elected around the country who has said, I won't do certain kinds of prosecutions. Now, DeSantis made an aggressive move here. And of course, everybody's going to you know freak out about it. But this this is just to give you raw political analysis, this is his instinct that has put him up where he, we showed him on the polling, mm-hmm. finding a way to provoke a reaction that gets him the enemies that you need in a potential Republican primary mm-hmm. to rise. And he's done it time and again. He did it with Disney. You know, he's, he's, he has done it over and over again. So it, one of the reasons he is sitting at the top of the non-Trump heap is because he, he does have an instinct to perceive these opportunities, and then to aggressively act on them, which is something, you know, Republican voters are, are looking for out of their national candidates. Yeah, I mean, with the overturning of Roe, we knew, I mean, that night that we were going to see governors across the country in these red states just tripping over themselves, trying to get further to the right of the next one, because they want headlines and they want to make a name for themselves. But what we're talking about here, too, and I, I hope we don't get lost on this, He's upset that an attorney 
might not prosecute or criminalize a doctor or a woman seeking an abortion. I mean, that is what we're talking about here. That is where we are right now in the United States of America, the state of Florida, right? I mean, it is horrifying that we're even having this discussion, that we're talking about criminalizing abortion, but that is where we're at right now. And he might win a Republican primary, but he better be paying attention to what just happened in Kansas. Well, you know, just to be clear, the reason I was asking him the questions about, is this a hypothetical? Has this actually happened yet? Mm -hmm. He kept going back to what? The Florida Supreme Court said, under a right to privacy, abortion qualifies. That's what he was rejecting, the idea of saying, I'm not going to go against the Supreme Court of Florida if they should choose something perhaps differently. But that's a point that wasn't raised in that particular press conference. Everyone stick around. Back with some late-breaking news from Capitol Hill. A key senator says they are ready now to help their party on major legislation. It's a moment many lawmakers have been waiting for, and we'll talk about it next. We've got some breaking news right now from Capitol Hill and important news for Democrats. They're trying to get as much of their agenda through as they can with the midterms like a sword of Damocles hanging above their head. Manu Raju is on the phone. Manu, bring us up to speed. What's going on? Yeah, a really significant development that is in a real clear sign that Joe Biden could very well get a major legislative victory here in the days ahead. Senator Kirsten Sinema, who has been the key holdout over his major economic package, a deal that was reached last week by Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer to put forward changes on health care laws, on on energy provisions, as well as new taxes. Cinema has just announced that she will agree to move forward with this legislation after a deal that she cut with Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, on changes to this package. Now, let me break it down now. To get this bill through, you need all 50 Democrats to be on board. Cinema was the one, the biggest holdout because of her concerns over the tax provisions. One of the tax provisions in there was the, the tax, what's called known as carried interest, which is a tax on hedge funds and private equity. She has gotten an agreement to remove that from this proposal. That would have raised about $14 billion on a plan that Democrats estimate would save about $300 billion in deficit savings. She has also <clears throat> excuse me, raised concerns about the issue of <clears throat> about a 15% minimum tax on, on major corporations. Now, uh, th- this uh, issue became a major key concern for her because manufacturers in her state were raised concerns about how they were able to, whether they would be able to uh, deduct depreciation of their assets on their tax returns the way that it is allowed under current law. Democrats are trying to phase that back in order to raise more revenue. She had pushed back about that. She won a significant change on that issue as well. And as a result, she announced that she knows a deal, she said, to move and she'll agree to, quote, move ahead because of this deal to, quote, protect advanced manufacturing, she says, and remove carried interest and boost clean energy from this deal. Now, to make up for the shortfall, because now there is tens of billions of dollars that will not be part of this proposal to save money for the ultimate uh, for the budget, she is, the Democrats have agreed to instead impose a tax on companies that uh, purchase stocks, what are known as stock 
buybacks. They will impose an excise tax on stock buybacks to make up for that shortfall. They're promising still that ultimately this deal that was cut would raise $300 billion. So taking a step back, uh, Laura, this deal would allow for Medicare for the first time to negotiate prescription drug prices, would spend hundreds of billions of dollars to deal with clean energy and climate change as well, including new electric vehicle tax credits. It would extend Affordable Care Act subsidies for the next three years. It would still impose that 15% minimum corporate tax on large corporations, but with some changes passed by Cinema. And now with Cinema's support, the Democrats have an agreement essentially to move forward as soon as Saturday to begin debate on this bill. Votes will happen all through the day on Saturday into Sunday, potentially. And then it looks very likely that this bill, after more than a year of negotiations that have gone back and forth and have collapsed time and again, and have this bill, of course, has been pared back from the president's initial Build Back Better bill, they can finally get this bill out of the Senate along straight party lines and then move it onto the House as soon as next week. Now, this is all looking very good for Democrats. But one big question that is still remaining is the Senate parliamentarian needs to make a decision about what provisions can be allowed to be approved through a process, special process they're using to avoid a Republican filibuster so they can pass it along straight party lines. If that clears that final hurdle, Democrats could be staring at a major legislative victory, one in which Republicans vigorously oppose. Mona Raju, thank you so much. It's unbelievable. Let's bring back in. I want to bring in Scott Jennings and David Swerdlick and Abby Finkenauer. But I first want to read a statement that we just got from Senator Sinema saying, following this effort, I look forward to working with Senator Warner to enact carried interest tax reforms, protecting investments in America's economy and encouraging continued growth while closing the most egregious loopholes that some abuse to avoid paying taxes. So one of the headlines, everyone up there, is the idea of a straight party vote. You've got cohesion among the Democrats right now. It came down to an issue about the taxes and her constituents, but she's no longer on the fence. She's moving forward now. This is far less than what President Biden wanted over his overall economic agenda, but it is a heck of a win if they're able to get it done. It sounds like tonight they've moved forward enough to be able to do that. How's it going to play? Well, first of all, uh Actually passing this and having Medicare negotiate with drug companies and bring down those prices is going to be a game changer and lifesaver for Americans all across this country. I mean, I, I, I kid you not, when I was campaigning in 18 and then in 2020, when I was out there, it was literally always the number one thing folks would talk about. I mean, I held roundtables and you had, there was a farmer actually who talked about being told he should divorce his wife if he wanted to be able to keep his farm because she couldn't afford the MS medication that she needed. I mean, this is where we are still in the United States of America. And when this passes, I mean, game changer all around and just something, again, that I am so grateful is finally going to get done. I'm glad you point out what's happening outside of the Beltway because we oftentimes, I mean, I'm a Minnesotan, you're from Iowa, Kentucky, We'll count you two. Where are you coming mm, today? America. All right, Mark. Yeah. He's from America. That's it. My first thing. Where you go? But the point is, we often think about the politics within the Beltway here in Washington D.C. as opposed to how this translates beyond. How will this translate in your, as they say, neck of the woods? Well, a couple things. First of all, no games will change until 2026 because the the prescription drug provisions don't kick in until then. So as a political matter, nothing's going to change. I, I really think 
the biggest problem the Democrats have with passing this. We can call it a win, but they've named a piece of legislation the Inflation Reduction Act. The Congressional Budget Office, the Joint Committee on Taxation have said this will have a at best, a negligible impact on inflation. And so if inflation is the number one issue in the country, and according to the polling it is, if you vote on a bill today to, say, reduce inflation, and in two months, three months, we're going to the polls, and inflation has not come down, you're going to own that. And so I, I really do think they have a branding issue on this. I know why they changed the name of it, so that Joe Manchin could go out and claim he did something. But that's not going to change what's happening to voters themselves. So the, the prescription drug stuff doesn't happen for years. The climate stuff is, you know out in the future somewhere. The main issue is inflation, and it does nothing despite the bill's title. Do you really think that the voters think to themselves the name is more important than the meat on the bone? I mean, really? I think if you tell people, hey, we passed a bill called Inflation Reduction Act, and inflation doesn't go down, or maybe it goes up in the short term, according to one analysis, they might, they might notice, <laughs> because they're already noticing. It's the number one issue in the country. I think Scott's right that this is partly a rebranding exercise by renaming the bill. It's really the quadruple B, the baby build back better. The glass half empty way to look at this is that Democrats got not nearly what they started out wanting a year ago or six months ago. The glass half full way to look at this for Democrats is that they learned a lesson from all of the sort of heartburn and agita of last year and not getting their most moderate senators uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema on board. Coming into this year, they got that skinny gun control legislation because they knew it was all they could get. They got chips passed. They got uh, they got the uh, burn pits legislation. They've learned now: rebrand, get what you can get with fifty votes plus the vice president's tiebreaker, and move on. It's not what the base wants but it's better for Democrats and for the administration than what they were dealing with last year, which was everybody looking and saying, this is a stall out, what are you doing? I want to hear what Bernie Sanders says, I, and I want to hear what you say too, because he's been critical of this. You know, he's given several speeches very critical of this bill. I mean, I assume he's going to vote for it, but taking out the carried interest piece, which you all are going to argue, some people are going to argue, is a giveaway to the hedge funds. I mean, what's Bernie Sanders going to go down to the floor and say tomorrow? Again, I'm not expecting They said party-line vote, though, okay? we, right? They, but, they but said that. But he's been critical of this because of what you just said. It's slimmed down. Like, it, it doesn't go enough far enough for him. Now you've taken out the piece that would, you know, <laughs> that he would probably like the most. Senator Sanders. Now that he's the Senate Budget Committee chair, he's part of Democratic leadership. He's, he's not a backbencher. He's not throwing socialist firecrackers from the cheap seats. If he doesn't go along with it, then, you know, what is he doing in that committee chairmanship? Where yeah. are the cheap seats, just out of curiosity? <laughs> I don't want to go to you after that, Abby, but that, I just, you know, I'm still on the edge of the heartburn part because I do have that in that moment. What were you saying? Yeah, you know, I, I think this is really going to be on what do Democrats do with this now? How do we actually get this in front of people? Because at the end of the day, I mean, folks are, you know, hearing things in many different ways. I mean, in Iowa in particular, 74% of Iowa voters are on Facebook. And are we organizing people there? Are we getting people, are getting the information in front of the people who need to hear it? Because you can pass good legislation all day long. And quite frankly, I passed a hell of a lot of it in 19 and in 2020. And yet, it was always that hurdle of how do you get it in front of people? And that is going to be the test coming up into November. This is a really good bill. Is it everything? No, but it is a really good bill. And now Democrats have to go tell people. Well, might I suggest TikTok? That seems to be <laughs> yes. the way to get people. I don't know how to work it, but I'm just saying I hear that's the thing everyone's doing now. Thank you, everyone. Coming up, CNN learns former President Trump's legal team is talking to the DOJ. 
about their January 6th criminal probe. So I wonder where those conversations are actually going. And the new warning from Liz Cheney of the January 6th committee about what happens if the DOJ decides not to prosecute Trump, what she's telling CNN ahead. New tonight, a CNN exclusive. Former President Trump's legal team is in direct talks with the Department of Justice officials who are investigating, of course, January 6th, according to sources familiar with the matter. They're telling CNN that Trump's defense lawyers warned him indictments are possible, though the former president does, in fact, remain skeptical. The DOJ, meanwhile, is preparing for a court battle to force White House officials to testify about Trump's conversations and actions around the attack. So, what is going to happen next? Let's talk about it with Scott Jennings, Elliot Williams, and Miles Taylor. Glad to have all of you here today. We all have the Blazers on. You're welcome, America. You're welcome, America, as we just heard about the Blazers. It's a night of Blazers. So listen, I mean, we're hearing piecemeal about talks that are happening, and DOJ is getting this information here and subpoenaing here and talks there. I'm wondering collectively, is this moving the needle, or are pe- and in which direction? What do you think? Well, look, I'll tell you who it is moving the needle for, people who worked for Donald Trump. I mean, I talked to a lot of people who've left the administration, some who've spoken out against Mm -hmm. him, some who haven't, uh, including lawyers that worked for Donald Trump. By and large, they think he's going to be indicted. Not all of them. Some of them tell me they don't think he's going to be indicted. But most of the people I talked to have shifted. It wasn't that case a year ago. Most of them thought, no, he's Teflon Don. He won't get indicted. That's a big shift to me, is that his own people think he's going to get indicted. But forget ex-Trumpers, forget people who've worked for him. Who cares what I have to say? A federal judge in California said those four words, more likely than not, that he committed a crime. I think that's probably the most damning thing we've seen so far in terms of assessments of his criminality. What do you yeah. think, Elliot? Yeah, look, now, the fact that he's they're reportedly talking to the Justice Department right now, that's not really anything that remarkable. Look, even countries, before they go to war, send envoys to negotiate the terms of the battle, and that might be happening here, and it may end in a prosecution, and it may not. The most important thing is, look— but I mean, if war is next, that's pretty significant. If war is next, if, if war is happening. next, yeah, you know, the fact that, you know, your ambassador right. uh, yeah, is talking to the foreign minister, absolutely. Um, you know, so— does it move the needle? Look, the only person to whom that matters is the attorney general and the people making the determinations in the U.S. attorney's office, right? You know, um, and I think the congressman is on to something that um, what matters is the rule of law. And if the facts and evidence are there, yes, you ought to move forward with the prosecution. It wasn't really a remarkable statement she was making. It's that caveat at the end that where she said, if the facts and the law support a prosecution. We should all agree with that. We well, sh- we sure. should, we should agree, agree with that, with that yeah. but people have eaten and eaten the cake like Alice in Wonderland and gone through rabbit holes in different worlds here. So I wonder, I mean, I'll turn to you after the Alice in Wonderland <laughs> reference, oddly enough. I don't know what it is about you. You bring out the literary genius <laughs> in me, Scott. But I'm, I'm wondering what you make of the idea of, look, we hear and we heard a lot through the Mueller years. And I go back to the Mueller years because people had a, a patience issue, shall we say. And I feel that oftentimes they're conflating what happened then with what's happening now. And you see the patience or the impatience carrying over. And sometimes Democrats say, you know what, this is it. This is it. This is it. And Republicans are saying, it still ain't it. It still ain't it. It still ain't it. How is that those two converging in a way that might work to the electorate 
Yeah, I, I think you're onto something there because during the Trump years, there was a whole bunch of people who had it in their mind that Mueller was going to kick open the White House door wearing a trench coat and a fedora and slap the cuffs on Donald Trump. And that was just never a, re- a realistic outcome. And obviously it didn't happen. Well, those people still exist and they still want that outcome. I think Elliot said it best. If the facts and the law warrant this, then the process has to be allowed to happen. Except for one thing. There is a political question here about whether the sitting president of the United States and his administration should, can, will indict the person he defeated, the former president, who may well be a candidate for that office in the future. That is not a small issue here. And so there'll be a lot of people in America uh, who, you know, may not think Donald Trump did anything right or good on January the 6th, but don't think it's right for Joe Biden to indict him. That has to be weighing, the, the political question has to weigh on Wait, the because, final because the thought is that he is trying to silence a potential political opponent? That's how it would be seen by millions of Americans. Now, you may disagree with that, and you may not think that's right, but that, that's, not, that's not something you can ignore, uh, I think, when you're, when you're dealing with... I mean, this, we're in uncharted no, waters right. here. No, I think you're absolutely right. There is a political reality to indicting or you know, investigating, prosecuting anyone, particularly when that person is a former president of the United States. But look, look at the mountain of evidence we've seen, the number of people that have been prosecuted around him, uh, at least in connection with January uh, 6th and so on. It's a fair point yeah. that the, the Justice, Department, Justice Department has to think about what the political fallout might be. To your point about the sort of investigation fatigue, I also, you know, I, I do think you're on to something here because it's the first impeachment that I think people had their had a, the public has a hard time getting their heads around what if I were to ask everybody how do you explain what happened in the first impeachment well there was Ukraine and a phone call and there was an orange and, it's, just, and it, it's hard for people to understand right it's quid pro quo it, it's quid pro quo but right I just, but I get I get I yeah. get your point and the idea because there's been two in as many years on that very issue I'll give you the last word though Miles because I wonder about the idea of thinking about the fatigue of it there's a political question, that's true, but there's a political consequence of not doing it as well. There absolutely is, and that's where I've got to agree and disagree with Scott. In the first case, I would say this. Look, there, there's few people on this planet who dislike Donald Trump more than me. I'm going to put that out there. I think he's genuinely one of the most awful people I've ever met in my entire life, but I would be one of the first to say I also don't think that should make us want him to be prosecuted, and I've been saying that for years. We shouldn't desire that an ex-president be prosecuted, and Scott's right. This would result in crisis, no matter what. Prosecuted, if he is, it's going to be a crisis in this country. But to your point, if he's not, it's also a crisis. If the facts, as Liz Cheney said, show that he's guilty of a crime, because that suggests that he is above the law and presidents are above the law. And that's not a signal we want to send in our republic. Now that we know he's being investigated by DOJ, I'm just going to warn you all. If he's not indicted, he will say that's exoneration. If well, he we is don't indicted, know he's being investigated. His lawyers are in conversations well, with there, DOJ. Well, there's, there's been some reporting about there, it. Well, there, well, yes, but the, but I we haven't had the definitive statement from Merrick Garland. But I, your point is well taken. Yeah. The idea, just as we saw Alex Jones say, hey, a $4 million yeah. verdict was a win for me in the truth, a failure to indict would create a oh, similar yeah. talking point as well. Thank you, everyone. It's not going to end today. We're going to keep getting more information. And we did talk about Sandy Hook a little bit ago. You know, they tore down that school and they built a new one. But in Florida, they've left a big piece of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School exactly as it stood the date of that tragic mass shooting. We're going to show you why they did that next. (laughs) 
Four and a half years since 17 students and school staff were killed in Parkland, Florida. The victims' families are still reliving the trauma of that horrific day. Many shared their pain on the stand this very week. As jurors now weigh whether the convicted gunman should face the death penalty or life in prison without the possibility of parole. Now, in considering his fate, jurors visited the mass shooting site today. The high school, you may be surprised to learn, was left largely intact in anticipation of this trial. Court reporters who viewed the scene after the jury's walkthrough described this. Valentine's Day cards and teddy bears strewn throughout the scene amid broken glass and bloodstained walls with bullet marks. A murder scene frozen in time with laptops left open and assignments never to be looked at again. A day meant to celebrate love that turned into devastating heartbreak for so many families. I wish every single day that this was a nightmare that I could just wake up from. I want my family back. I want my sweet Alex back. Tina didn't come home from school that day. I told her from the day that she was born until I drew my last breath that all that I am was hers. I told my daughter I couldn't imagine my life without her. And now at a time in our lives, we should be focused on our children. I find myself questioning how I'll be able to make it to the next day. Our life was disrupted suddenly, and now I keep talking to me, to him, in my mind. That last woman there is Patricia Oliver, whose son, Joaquin, would have turned 22 today. He's remembered for his eagerness to make people smile. His is the story of so many others who held so much promise and so much hope for the future, but their lives were cut short by one man. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.